0: Welcome, my name is Natasha Sherman, and I am your host. And my guest today is Jeffrey Deskovic. He is the executive director of the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation. Jeffrey was wrongfully accused of rape and murder at the age of 16, sent to jail for 16 years, and after 16 years in jail, was exonerated. And he started the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation. He's here not only to share his story but his perspective and what changes need to occur in our system. Welcome.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for being here. And this first part, I do want to get your story, because I think it's important for people to get the humanity, not just the ideas.
1: Of course. Yeah.
0: So at age 16, you were living where?
1: In Peekskill, uh, New York.
0: So uh you, it according to everything I read and saw you were kind of this quiet kid and uh very often quiet kids get mislabeled as weird and um some girl who uh was uh, uh, you know very protected by her family she was from Colombia so she didn't you know go anywhere alone whatever she went out to do a homework assignment and was found dead and strangled and raped yes yes so now Tell us some of the sequence of events that had you end up being accused and then found guilty.
1: Yeah, well, the police interviewed many students from the high school, and some of those students told the police that they might want to speak to me because it seemed strange for them, for the reasons you just mentioned. So that's what the police said initially attracted them to me. The other factor which they said attracted them to me, they said I was overly upset at the victim having been murdered which I was upset, but this really shook up the whole city. It hadn't been a murder there for about 20 years. So the public officials in the city of Peaceville had even offered free mental health services to anyone uh, who who, uh, wanted them. So everybody was uh, kind of shook up. So they understood
0: that this was a huge impact. Absolutely. But somehow you seemed a little too upset.
1: Yes, exactly. So over the next uh, six weeks from there, the uh, police, they played this game with me in which... Um, they would periodically have contact with me, and my interactions with them would, would always take on the following dynamic. Half the time they would speak to me as if I was a suspect, and the other half the time they would uh, pretend like you know, they needed my help to solve the crime. Look, the kids won't talk freely around us, they will around you. Let us know if you uh, hear any rumors, stop in from time to time.
0: So in this kind of double message, yes. what are you feeling? Are you feeling a little apprehensive, or are you actually just thinking they're good guys
1: both mm. so I I mean when they would talk to me as if I was su- a suspect I mean I would start to feel you know nervous I would start to get apprehensive and I think they were they would were able to pick up on when they had went a little bit too far and that's when they would sh- switch to the other theme and you know reel me back in and you know of course pretending like they were my friend in addition to this helper most people uh, including myself we when we're really young we think about what career what we might want to be when we grow up and so for me you know, I had uh, at a young age I thought I wanted to be a police officer, so I think so. Here, this unexpected opportunity to mm. be involved in police work in some fashion, I think that's kind of what made what now clear as an adult was you know absurd proposition. I think that I think that was part of the psychological dynamic of why I stayed involved with them, so to speak. Right. So eventually. Um,
0: Now, as they're talking to you, are they coming to your home? Is your mother aware of this, or Mm -hmm. where are they talking to you? Uh,
1: At the at the police station, and at and at at times um, at different parts in the city. uh, My mother was not aware of my interacting with them. She was aware that I had contact with them once, you know, and uh, she had told me that she didn't want me to uh, interact with them. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, they're pretending to, you know, they need my help and all this stuff, and you know, just the the respect and trust you have for police officers. So, you know. I continue to do and so anyway. And they made anyway. you special. And they made me special. Yeah, and I think to add, to throw in an additional psychological dynamic, I mean, I really grew up uh, without a father figure, mm. and so the one, one of the police officers who was really pretending, who was pretending to be my friend, he kind of took on a quasi-father sure. role, and so that was another thing which kind of kept me hooked in there. Yeah.
0: So they're asking you these questions, and it's kind of, you know, feeling good, not feeling good, And then when did it turn?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, periodically during all these encounters, you know, they would ask me to take a lie detector test and I would decline to take it. And so finally, eventually, uh, they came up with this uh, plan where uh, they told me, look, we have some new information which has just come into us, but we can't share it with you until you've taken the polygraph. So you got to be, you know, cleared, you know, so kind of a help us to help you to help us pretzel logic. And so uh, I agreed to uh, take this polygraph test. So uh, it was. A, so the next day I went, rather than go to school, I went to the police station, uh, which since it was a school day, my, neither my mother nor my grandmother with whom I live realized that anything was wrong. So they didn't call around looking for me. They drove me to the town of Brewster, which is in Putnam County. So the reason why that's important is because that meant I was no longer able to leave on my own. I was instead dependent upon the police. Right. Now, although they had uh, three police officers there who I knew were police officers, there was a fourth police officer who was a polygraphist who was dressed as a civilian and who was pretending not to be a police officer.
0: So you're supposed to have, a polygraph operator is supposed to be a civilian and not have a vested interest in the outcome, yes?
1: Yeah, in an objective test, yes, that's correct.
0: So they didn't tell you this, that he's really a policeman dressed as a civilian.
1: Right, exactly right. So they put me in a small room, and at my, I didn't have an attorney present, and they didn't give me anything to eat the entire time I was there. Before beginning the test, the polygraph is, uh, it gave me countless cups of coffee, and that's important because the premise of the polygraph is if you tell a lie, you'll become nervous, and the nervousness will result in sped-up pulse rate. And it's actually the pulse rate which is measured by the machine. But other factors which will result in increased pulse rate would be fear and caffeine. So, which you had both. Which I had both. So he used a lot of scare, uh, scare tactics. He invaded my personal space. He raised his voice at me. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again, uh, becoming more and more uh, ferocious as, as time went on. At the same time, they were playing good cop, bad cop uh, in terms of the police officers there who I knew were police officers. Uh, towards the end of the—and uh, he kept us up for more than six and a half hours. Towards the end of the interrogation, the polygraphist, he made a statement to me. He said— Uh, what do you mean you didn't do it you just told me through the test result that you did we just want you to verbally confirm this so that really shot my fear through the roof and it was at that moment that the police officer who was pretending to be my friend he came in the room and informed me that the other officers were going to harm me but that he was holding them off but couldn't do so indefinitely
0: I want to stop you here because this is so horrifying this is like something out of a movie right but it wasn't a movie it was a 16 year old boy yes who had been lied to manipulated maneuvered threatened and what did you think when he said to you the polygraph told me you were guilty
1: that made me very much more fearful i mean i but didn't did you think i that didn't doubt my innocence if that's what you're really right, getting at no right. i didn't doubt my innocence
0: but you're thinking gosh the machine is telling them something that i isn't true but that means they could find me guilty Kind of. I'm sure you're not thinking of that in the moment. So now this other cop, who's who's kind of the father figure, is saying to you, "I'm holding them off, but they're wanting chomping at the bit to come after you." Right. And I can't
1: do so, and I can't continue to to do this. Look, just do what they want, and to say what you know, uh, which is to confess, and not only they stop what they're doing, but that I could go, you could go home afterwards. Being yeah. young, naive, frightened, again, 16, not thinking long-term. I'm the only concern of my safety Get in home. the moment. Yes, I took the out which they offered. I made up a story based on information which they had given me in the course of their interrogation. Uh, by the time the interrogation was finished, by the cops' own testimony, I was on the ground on the uh, fetal position. I was um, crying uncontrollably.
0: So, uh, again, you know, we think... We don't know what six hours, six and a half hours of badgering are. You're alone, you're isolated. Mm-hmm. These are grown ups in the adult world who have the power over your life and your day- s- safety. And you fed them information, and from what I understand. Well, they gave me information. Right, and, you gave them the regurg- information. Regurgitated. You regurgitated it, but yes. some of it was wrong.
1: Right, which shows you that it was a false confession because right. if I was the actual perpetrator, I wouldn't have gotten any of the details wrong.
0: Yeah. Oh, and I'm going to interject something here and then go back to the story. I read somewhere that 25% of... um,
1: The DNA-proven wrongful convictions were caused by false false confessions. confessions. Yes, and although adults have been known to give false confessions, particularly vulnerable populations, have been identified by false confession experts as youth and people with mental health issues, in which I was a youth.
0: Yeah. Okay, so now you're lying on the floor crying in the fetal position. All you wanted to do was get home. Just get home, get home. That's all you heard. And so you're going to do whatever you could. And, of course, they're not sending you home. No. What happens next?
1: They brought me back to uh, the Peekskill um, headquarters. And, you know, it was only, it was only later on in, in the headquarters when you know, I was, they gave me pizza at the police station. And it was only in the course of them doing the processing that it was at that point that I realized that I was in fact under arrest and that the promise they gave me was was false. I mean, I didn't even realize that on the way, on the way to the police station. So at, at, before I went to trial, the results of a DNA test came in from the FBI lab, which uh, showed the semen found the victim didn't match. Which really, by everything right, should have ended the case right there, except that the, uh, prosecutorial misconduct then took place and uh, aided by fraud by the medical examiner. So.
0: So, again, they've, they've forced this kind of, you know, intimidated a confession out of you. Mm-hmm. DNA evidence shows not yours, and but because they've gotten this confession out of you, they run with that.
1: Yeah, exactly right. And I once want sort to of throw in, uh, Natasha, that... Uh, the lieutenant uh, of, of uh, Peekskill, who had wrote the letter to the FBI lab urging them to expedite the uh, testing of the DNA, wrote in this letter that the test results either really show that I was guilty or else exonerate me. But then when the results came back and it didn't match me, yet, as you said, they, they ran with it, which is what, to me, one of the strongest facts for proving that this was not a good faith uh, error.
0: Right. They had someone.
1: Right. You were it. Right. So when an autopsy is done, the results, the audio and written notes are taken contemporaneously as findings are made as a way of ensuring the authenticity. So it was only six months after doing the initial autopsy and only in response to the DNA not matching me that suddenly for the first time the medical examiner uh, claimed that he found uh, found evidence to show that the victim, who was, as you mentioned, a 15-year-old immigrant from Columbia living a very sheltered life, that she had been, Excuse me, sexually active, which is what opened the door for the prosecutor to argue that it didn't matter that the semen didn't come from me because she could have had sex close enough to murder rapes and rape so as to explain away the DNA.
0: Right. She had had consensual sex before you presumably raped her.
1: Yes, and taking it a step further, they also named another youth by name that they claimed that she had had this encounter with, but they never did a DNA test to, to try to prove that. They didn't even call him as a witness. The prosecutor just made the unsupported argument to the jury.
0: See, the thing that is so horrifying to me is that you can make all those kind of unsupported statements, and from what I gather, you had a public defender. Yes. and. His investment in you was not a great investment Uh, and so he could have challenged all of this along the way Right. and he never did.
1: Right. Let me illustrate the ways in which he he failed me. Uh, Firstly, he never explained to the jury what the significance of the DNA excluding me was nor used that to argue that this so-called confession was coerced and false, which you would think that's bare minimum. Uh, when it was time to cross-examine the medical examiner, whose fraud was so crucial in this case, he, uh, he never asked him a single question, so he didn't cross-examine him. Uh, he never we, Because of a conflict of interest in that my lawyer should have never represented me because the other youth that the prosecution was falsely claiming had had this encounter was represented not only by another member of Legal Aid Society of Westchester, but by, his, by the attorney who was supposed to be supervising him on my case. Okay. And then in addition to that, as if that wasn't enough, he never spoke to nor called as a witness my alibi. I was actually playing well ball at the time that the crime happened.
0: So let me stop here because all of this is like mind boggling. And it just occurs to me like he's just processing a piece of equipment. And you happen to be the piece of equipment. And let's just get him through as quickly as possible and get him to the end, wherever that end is. Uh, which the legal system is saying jail, um, did you know that he was not a good advocate for you were there no s-
1: oh. no because i was I was by that point, I was seventeen years old uh, his reputation in in Westchester was that he was the best trial lawyer of uh, legal aid, and whenever I would ask him questions or and you know whatever I would question him, okay uh, Basically, his response was, look, I'm an experienced lawyer. Just sit back, relax, let me do my job.
0: Trust me. Trust
1: me. And I didn't know any better. Of
0: course not. I know even as an adult, when I first went looking for a divorce lawyer, you know, it's like, trust me. And again, that doesn't always go well. You know, sometimes no. it. so, and at 17, my God, how do you know anything different?
1: Right, e- exactly. And just to add a few other uh, failings of his, he very rarely met with me. Uh, and then whenever I would, whenever we would meet, I would try to explain to him how, that I was innocent and what happened in the interrogation room. But he was always shutting me up. I remember on one particular memorable occasion, he told me he didn't care whether I was guilty or innocent, which kind of mind-boggling in of itself because you would think that that would affect the strategy and how you present and see a case.
0: Right, and you had evidence. You had uh, the, the DNA uh, test. A, a DNA test, an alibi. Uh, you know, the coercion of the uh, confession. Confession and he was not interested in any of that
1: no then I wanted to testify at the pretrial hearing because the although testifying truthfully to the circumstances of, of the interrogation in the main the cops conveniently left out the illegal things which they did which was the uh, the threat and the false promise So my testimony would have been the only way that evidence could have made its way onto the record. So I I wanted to testify at the pre-trial hearing, but he wouldn't allow me to. He said, look, I haven't decided if you're going to testify at the trial or not, so I don't want to have you under oath as to what happened. But that doesn't make any sense because had the judge believed me, then the confession would not have been allowed as evidence and there would have been no trial. Then when we got to the trial, he wouldn't allow me to testify there either. Telling me, well, it's not my job to prove you're innocent. They have to prove you're guilty, and I don't think they've done that. You know, so that's really that's really a uh, a maxim you might hear in a classroom. That's naive to think it works that way. In reality, if you find yourself charged with a crime you're innocent of, you better do everything in your power to prove that you're innocent, or else you're at a risk of possibly being wrongfully convicted.
0: Yeah, and the thing that, uh, I mean, it's so horrifying. Uh, but the thing that. Um, is is mind-boggling is that so many steps along the way, people...
1: It was a total systems failure.
0: Yeah. Failed you every step along the way. Yes. And at 17, did you, it feel to you like you were living in somebody else's nightmare? Yes, it did. So now you go to trial, and they find you guilty. Mm-hmm. And the minute that they say guilty, I what? felt
1: like I was, it was surreal, like I was, as you said, I, I was in this nightmarish alternative reality, because my way of thinking up, at, at least up until that point in time, was that only the guilty were convicted. Uh, and then to add to the system's failure aspect of it, I mean, on the day of the sentencing, I mean, I, I begged the judge to overturn the verdict, I, and I referenced the DNA to support my contention. He actually told me on the record, uh, maybe you are innocent, conceding that there's a doubt, but that didn't allow, that didn't lead him to step up for justice and exercise his discretion by overturning the conviction. He instead did the easy, politically expedient thing, which was to sentence me to a term of imprisonment of 15 to life.
0: And I heard that the fact that it's 15 to life means that there's no end date by when they have to release you. Exactly right. It's like this endless sentence.
1: Right, exactly right. You could,
0: after 15 years, go in front of a parole board, but There was was no compelling reason for them to ever
1: release you. Right. They would never reach a point in time where they were legally obligated to release me. It was totally discretionary. And as it turned out, after I did the 15 years, I was turned down for parole, resulting in my doing an additional year before I was proven innocent.
0: You know, in our conversation before the show, one of the things that I mentioned that I want to mention on the show is this can happen to anyone. Does it happen every day? No, but it happens. And it doesn't happen just to people in certain neighborhoods or whatever. It can happen to anyone. And we need to pay attention.
1: I want to reinforce your point. I agree with you. I mean, as of now, there's been 332 DNA-proven wrongful convictions across the country, uh, about 1,400 non-DNA cases, and still, uh, and still counting. There is no particular life path that you could be on in order to exempt you uh, from this. Uh, Last year, according to a New York Times study, there was uh, 87 people exonerated, and then another two were found after that. And this year, we're up to about 60. You know, as a matter of fact, there's there's an organization that um, I'm a co. I'm an advisory board member and my uh, foundation is part of the, the coalition. It's, it's actually called It Can Happen to You. And we're working on a couple of really important um, innocence reforms, uh, such as automatic discovery, which means all the evidence should be turned over at the, at the time the person is arraigned. Uh, both information and that's
0: not the case now, or is it state no. by state?
1: It's state. It's state by state. Most most states don't have it. Uh, New Jersey actually does have automatic discovery. Most states uh, do not. So you're you can
0: hold back evidence forever yeah. until just before the trial.
1: Yeah, exactly. And sometimes they go beyond beyond that. Uh, sometimes it doesn't come out until post conviction. Uh, so there's that and then also uh, a commission on prosecutor conduct there should be an oversight board to discipline rogue prosecutors and right now there isn't that And prosecutorial misconduct is a really uh, big factor in most of these cases
0: you know you and I were talking before and the one thing I said is I keep asking the unanswerable question why would anybody do something so evil and I'm sure there are a lot of answers each person is different uh, I think some of it, in my mind is it just becomes another day, another person to process through the system and uh, you know you develop an attitude to war if they if they arrested him he 's probably guilty. Does it happen to women
1: absolutely yeah women women are wrongfully uh, convicted as well we, we know that because some women have been uh, exonerated. Uh, not a, there hasn't been a lot of women exonerated, some, but and the reason for that is because most of the organizations in the innocence movement uh, only take on cases if there's DNA in it, and that that typically is murder and rapes, and you know that those aren't the typical crimes that women are roughly right. convicted of.
0: So uh, there was a question I wanted to ask you to slip my mind, but um, so now you're convicted and you've got your sentence to 15 years to life. And you walk into this maximum security prison at the age of seventeen, all adults. Yes. And in one interview, you said there, you see these guys with arms as big as your thighs. Yes. Knowing that uh, sexual offenders are considered the the low end of the pond. Yes. And are not treated well. Yes. What is your feeling in that moment?
1: I was living in fear that my that that the crime I'd been wrongfully convicted of would. Uh, would, would, uh, would come out. Did it? Yes, at times it did. Yeah, one time I almost lost my life.
0: So you're living, and see the thing is that also, uh, this was the thought I lost, is the idea that while you're in prison the actual guilty person is out there and kills someone
1: else. Yes, three and a half years later the actual perpetrator killed someone else in Peekskill who was a, uh, a teacher and a mother of two.
0: So not only did they take away your life, and your extended family, some aspect of their life. Yes. But they took away by just by default uh, the, the this woman's life. Yes. A mother of two children. Yes. And in the end, you got exonerated. But what's happened in between? So now I want to go back to being in prison because I can't imagine like it's just so terrifying. So. It's like living on the edge moment by moment.
1: Yes, exactly right.
0: Forever and ever. Yes. So you're constantly alert, on the watch, afraid. Yes. How do you avoid not getting attacked, not being the focus of, or do you ever avoid that entirely?
1: You never avoid it entirely, but you just can do certain things to try to, you know, minimize it. Like what? Well, I never talked about I never talked about my case. So if people right. ask, well, what are you in for? I just say, well, I I I'm been you know, I well the prison slang is uh, I have a body. I mean, it's, it's a right. say of, a it. way of saying you know I'm in for a murder. Yes. Uh, so there's that there's that aspect of it. I'm um, minding my business. Uh, you know. Do if, you have
0: a roommate? Are you alone?
1: About half the time I had a had a roommate. The other half the time I I I, I did I did not. So, I mean, violence was happening in one part of the prison, like from in the recreational area. So you put your back against the wall, uh, If you're, you know, you're seated and you take a seat in a mess hall. So you calculate online, well, which people are going to have their back to the, the new line of people. And you want to be on the other side of the table so you, can see, you, so you can see everything and you have to try to figure out, you know, who are the gang members, who's in what gang and try to avoid socializing with them because sooner or later they're going to self-destruct in one way or another. And you don't want to be around them uh, when it happens. Uh, you know, just kind of like be quiet and, and uh, to, uh, to yourself.
0: What is it, you know, it's, you're a different person than you would have been. Of course. And um, what is it that you think, what characteristics that you had as a human being, and maybe there were just some that you had to develop, that had you survive relatively intact physically?
1: I think my ability to adapt and, and learn and think quickly on my, on, on, my, on my feet and I guess as it turns out I mean just resilience I mean I just did not give up I mean I, as I uh, I think I mentioned to you earlier that you know I lost all seven of my appeals you know, I was turned down uh, for parole, and you know, I wrote letters for about four years without very rarely getting a response in terms of trying to get some legal assistance. And, you know, through all that, and then I was turned down for parole. So I, through all that, I kept plowing through and kept thinking about, you know, how, how am I going to get out of here? So eventually, that was eventually,
0: always the, in the foreground. Yes, I'm going to get out of here. Yes, yes. I think that kind of... Probably looks to me like the only salvation is to continue that, otherwise it was like it would be so hard not to just give up and
1: sure well, even with all that, I'll tell you it, you know I mean thoughts of uh, depression uh, isolation helplessness uh, thinking I, I, suicidal ideation I mean even thoughts of giving up all those were uh, frequently came in my mind, and so I, I not only waged an external battle but it also was uh, an internal one as well yeah
0: um just one more question before this first half hour because we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about the legal implications but when you came out I think one of the things that was really touching was you know you come out and its first night home and you think it's gonna be this big you like yee celebrate and you walk in this room of your family and the feeling is I don't belong
1: right by that point um, really they had really become strangers to me and you know to the extent that I did have some limited visitation I mean the conversations always centered around how do I get out of here how do I prove mm. my innocence so really, there was no real meaningful communication and as you said I just felt like I didn't belong that I was out of place that there were strangers and that I didn't really belong in society because by that point prison was almost everything that I knew and so being unable to Uh, relate to the people in the house I just I went out to the backyard and just I sat there and you know guy had always wanted to stay outside when it was dark out because in the prison you're in the prison yard they make you go inside but the other point of what you're saying is very true that there really were no there was no friends left Mm -hmm. for me to call to have a part who was I gonna call I had long since lost touch with any any of my And you know uh, it's like
0: all your focus has been to get out and then not kind of really being fully cognizant and how could you be of what that would mean like you have this vision of "Ah, free at last but there are other consequences we're through with our first half hour i can't wait to do the next half hour thank you so much for sharing your story my pleasure my name is natasha sherman thank you for joining us